There is only one God. And there is only one means of access to Him. There is only one God. And there is only one way into His presence. Our biblically trained ears hear those words, and we know this to be the unvarnished truth revealed in the Holy Scriptures. There is no other way to understand the Bible than to know there is one God and one means of access to Him. But our culturally trained ears warn us that such ideas are deeply offensive. They are gravely unpopular. They are seen as grossly disrespectful of others. The unyielding demand of our culture is for the coexistence of many gods. You have your God, I have my God, your God prevails on your turf, and my God prevails on my turf. Let's just live with each other on that. Such thinking comes to us by way of pluralism and multiculturalism in our day, the gods being transformed from little idols on a shelf to now being ourselves. We just get past the whole mess of it and get right down to what it was always about anyway. It's self-worship. But these gods, whether self or seen in some pagan context, really no new concept. It's been around for a long time. This concept that we must have a coexistence of many gods among us and all respect one another for the God that we choose. I think back in 1 Kings chapter 20, the Syrian king, you may remember the account, Ben-Hadad comes with 32 other kings in this great alliance against the Israelites. And he suffers a shocking defeat at the hand of Ahab, the king of Israel. He's a bit stunned by it. And his counselors come around him as he goes back home licking his wounds, and they say, listen, we think we've figured out the problem here. Israel's gods are the gods of the hills. If we meet them on the valleys, we'll defeat them. Ben-Hadad likes that concept. It's a concept that we in our humanity and our sinfulness appreciate. This coexistence of many gods, and some stronger in some places than others. And so he goes back to Israel that spring, and he tries it all again. But this counsel from his advisors angers God. It is a direct challenge to his glory, that I am just the God of the hills and not of the valleys. God didn't have a whole lot of love for Ahab and King Israel. They were at odds, but God would not stand back and hear this, and so in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 28, we hear that that rhetoric angers him. And as Ben-Hadad comes back and reinvades Israel in that spring, 100,000 Syrian troops are killed in the battle. 100,000. This isn't with air power. This is hand-to-hand combat. 100,000 troops die. What's left of Ben-Hadad's army escapes to the city of Aphek, and they find comfort in the walls of the city of Aphek. And for a reason we do not understand whether an earthquake or whatever it was, the wall caved in and killed all 27,000. The moral of the story 
God is the God of the hills and of the valleys. There is only one God. There are times such as this battle where God dramatically displays that. But throughout Scripture and in the person of Christ primarily, He demonstrates to people through all time that there is but one God. He is Lord over all things, and all must be reconciled to Him on His terms. And the question for us today is, how are we to demonstrate our belief in the universal reign of Jesus Christ over all peoples? As we come to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we find that one primary way in which we do that, among others, but one very significant way, is in our prayer life. That might not be the first answer we would give to that question. How do we demonstrate that God is one and that He reigns as sovereign over the universe It's in our prayer life as a church. If Eden Baptist Church genuinely believes that there is one God and one means of access to Him, if we genuinely believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to reach all peoples, this conviction will demonstrate itself in our prayer life as an assembly. Virtually no unbeliever anywhere is going to care if we worship what John Stott has called a parish God. That is, there's a God who kind of hovers over this building here, and He's confined to our property lines, and maybe to the property lines of your own home. Nobody's really going to care if that's your God. But if our God is the only God, then all peoples are accountable to Him. Our mission field is the world, and our prayers for that mission must be universal prayers. So with zeal for the glory of God, we need to grow as a community of prayer that labors against strong spiritual forces to advance the cause of the gospel in a hostile world. We need to seek the face of God that He would carry this gospel to all nations through us. I issue this proposition on a contextual reading of Paul's instructions to Timothy and the Ephesian church found here in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. We find, first of all, this call to universal prayer. Now, I stress the fact that I'm reading this contextually, bringing with everything into chapter 2 that came from chapter 1. We need to keep that in mind here because I think Paul is writing, as all speech is, in outline form. And we have to fill in the right blanks in the outline to understand where he's coming from. I believe this text has missed me in the past, and I believe it misses many of us. It just comes across in the wrong way if we're not careful to read it within context. And so we find here a call to universal prayer, and we'll trace that context in a few moments. But first of all, verse 1 of chapter 2. First of all, then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Notice in the first line the word then. First of all, then, or therefore. It is a key word in the interpretation of this passage in its position in the original text and the meaning of the original word in the Greek language. There is a direct connection to what precedes. A logical deduction from chapter 1. What have we learned in chapter 1? 
In verse 3, remember that we are to defend the true doctrine against false teaching. In verse 4, there is a stewardship from God that is by faith. God has committed to His church a trust in giving them the true doctrine. And there is a stewardship to maintain that true doctrine and to carry it throughout the world. There is the mission of the gospel in carrying this truth. Verse 11 of chapter 1. In accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so Paul writes, I thank Him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. The Word of God, the Gospel being Christ's death and resurrection proclaimed in all the world. Paul is taking that message and he's running with it. And he calls Timothy then to wage a good warfare, verses 18 and 19, to not make shipwreck of his faith. So with this whole context in mind, this call to prayer in chapter 2, we need to understand is directly connected to this Gospel-proclaiming, Gospel-living context. Paul is concerned that it not get derailed by false doctrine. It is an urgent aspect, this prayer, of the life of a church. It is an urgent aspect when that church is alive to the truth and active in gospel ministry. So, if we understand it then, I think Paul's not saying something like this. Hey, you know what, when it, when it comes to church life. Let's make sure we offer some nice prayers for the people in authority. That would be a real Christianly thing to do, and just don't forget about that. To every once in a while mention the elected officials, That's, it'll, it'll kind of make for a quiet life. That is, they won't disturb you, and you'll, you'll sort of fit within the culture. No, I think this is a call to urgent corporate prayer for the salvation of all people. And this prayer is directly connected to the saving purposes of God. We find this from the preceding context. We find it from what follows. Notice verse 3. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is not good and pleasing to God who desires that His church would just be peaceful and have no problems in the world. That's not the argument. The argument is this God wants all people to be saved. And therefore, it is right for us to pray for kings and all those in authority. Let's think about that a bit further. We'll come back to it in a moment. First of all, we notice here in verse 1, these four kinds of prayer, supplications, that's asking God to act in behalf of others, prayers, a very general term, intercessions, a petition or appeal, to God and thanksgivings. I don't think these words are to be taken exclusively as mutually exclusive with one another. Uh, they, they have different aspects and different orientations, but I think the point is all kinds of prayer to be prayed for all kinds of people. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. For kings and all those who are in Authority. This is referring simply to the civil authorities that are in this world. Why is that verse 2, the second half of the verse, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified life? The purpose or intended outcome of these prayers is this life of reverence toward God, which is above reproach with moral sincerity and earnestness in this world. That's the point of these prayers. 
Now, as we look at verses 3 and 4 and the connection to these prayers, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Such prayers are good and pleasing to God. It reminds us of Old Testament sacrificial language. As you're reading the Old Testament, you see this phrase, particularly in context of sacrifice, that the sacrifices of Israel were pleasing to God. Sometimes they were not pleasing to God, but the goal was that they would be. Now let's put it in our terms on this side of the cross. Our prayers are our sacrifice to God as followers of Jesus Christ. Our prayers ascend to Him as a pleasing sacrifice in His sight. And these prayers are to ascend to God in behalf of these civil authorities, to the God who wants all people to be saved. So what is the connection then, putting this all together? We have church prayers, we have the goal of godly living within a culture, and we have a God who desires to save all peoples. Outline form. We've got to put it all together properly. But I think as we do that, as we put it together... Paul does not spell out here the connection, but perhaps Peter does in a succinct way. And let's turn there, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. We can point out these same ideas from Paul, but it's put so carefully here in Peter. I'd just like to refer here rather than to turn to numerous other references in Pauline corpus. But 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Why is our conduct to be honorable? So we don't ever run into trouble? No, they're going to speak against you as evildoers. There's going to be persecution. Why we live honorably before unbelievers is because we do so in the interest of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do so that the gospel, as it visits unbelievers, will not be drugged down by our life. I don't know that I've heard any other excuse among those who do not know Christ as Savior for why they do not become a Christian. I don't know that there's any other excuse that I've heard more than that some Christian's a hypocrite. Now that's a ridiculous reason. Throw away God because some human being doesn't follow Him. It's insanity to reason that way. However, this is what many people think. They don't see a genuineness on the part of believers, and they turn from the gospel of Christ, which says they need to see that gospel lived out in a believer's life. The reason that we seek to live a life that is honorable before unbelievers is that we would adorn the gospel of Christ. That they would see it in all of its genuineness living out in our lives. Verse 13 of 1 Peter 2. Be subject then for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, to put to silence the ignorance of the critic. This is the reason for godly living. And bringing us back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, I think this is the reason for such prayers. 
We need to read these verses through the lens of the worldwide mission that defines the context. So the point again is not to pray for governmental leaders because it shows we're nice people who want to get along with our neighbors. The point is to pray for rulers to assist the worldwide spread of the gospel by ruling honorably and by granting us an opportunity to live out the truth of Christ before our neighbors. The spread of the gospel and the display of the gospel in peaceful, godly, dignified lives can be hindered by governmental leaders. When you're running for your life, it is difficult to live out a consistent testimony before the lost. Pray for the nations of the world. Pray for the civil authorities in those nations that there would be given freedom for believers to live out their life of faith before the lost. The church is called to lift up these earnest prayers to the one true God who desires to save all people such that the civil authorities will not hinder the gospel, but indeed that they themselves will embrace it. Philip Towner summarizes well, this is a prayer for an ideal set of social circumstances in which Christians might give unfettered expression to their faith in observable living. The church is to pray for the salvation of all, and it participates in that mission by making God present in society in its genuine expression of the new life for all to see. We then, as a local church, understanding this contextually, are to be a household of prayer. The sacrifice that we offer is to be a sacrifice a prayer to the Lord. We're to labor as a body for the salvation of all peoples, a vital function of our church is how, in the participation in the mission, is how we pray and how we seek the face of God. The God who, verse 4, desires that all would be saved. We have to stop here just for a moment, and I, in some respects, don't choose to do so or like to do so because I don't think it's really Paul's argument here, but we've got to ask, if God desires all people to be saved, why are they not all saved? It is a conundrum with which... Bible believers have to struggle and have for many, many long years. But Paul is not directly addressing predestination or the interrelationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility here. That's not the context. That's not what he's after in this place. I believe in God's predestinating, electing grace. Ephesians chapter 1, for instance, lays that out in most clear terms. In fact, I think in the end, every true believer believes in it in some respect. Even if you believe that God chooses for salvation, those that he foresees will choose him. When he said, let there be light, he chose them. So in any way that you cut it, God knows who will be saved, and God has ordained circumstances such that they will be saved. But that is not really Paul's focus here in this section. So we could say that maybe this is God's will of desire, that he takes no joy in the judgment of the lost, that he has a passion in his heart that all would respond to the gospel. But again, Paul is probably speaking less individualistically here 
and speaking more of God's saving interests which stretch to all categories of people. We are predisposed as Western thinkers to go individualistic in every context. When it says that God wants all people to be saved, our minds just naturally go there. That means every individual. I think Paul is speaking here more in terms, in broad categories, of all kinds of people. He has a desire to save all kinds of people. The saving interests of God are not limited to the Jews, but are universal in their reach. For instance, chapter 4 and verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now there's no faithful Bible interpreter that says that He is the Savior of all people, means that every last individual on earth is saved. But the point is that all kinds of people are saved, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, etc. We'll get back to that in a moment here. But the point is that it is not limited His focus covers all peoples. God desires to save male and female. He desires to save rich and poor, young and old, kings and subjects, as well as people of every language, tribe, and nation. This is particularly liberating to us, isn't it? I can go into all the world and preach the gospel to any individual, any human being, anywhere. I don't need to strategize and say, well, I'm not sure this person can, can handle it, or I'm not sure Christ really is interested in saving such a person, or I don't know if this person's elect. We don't ask these questions. We don't need to. We come into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all kinds of people as God leads them across our path. And if we have this desire as a church, the point is we will be a praying church. We will be beseeching God in behalf of the nations that all people would be saved. Verse 1. And that even among them would come to Christ kings and people in authority. But at any rate, that God would so move them that they provide an environment in which the gospel can be preached freely through word and deed. So there is this call to universal prayer. It is based on a revelation of exclusive access. Verse 5. For, here's your foundation for all that he is speaking of here. For, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. There is one God. Again, back to the word for, the universal scope of the gospel is directly connected to the fact that there is only one God. Since there is only one God, every human being is created in His image. Since there is only one God, every human being lives under His authority. And since this one and only God is a Savior, all humanity is the proper target of the gospel. There is only one God, and there is only one means of access to Him as well. The one mediator, Jesus Christ. The mediator being a person who stands between two and reconciles them together. He is a man. This word is stressed in the original text, as we can really pick it up here in the English as well. He is the man, Christ Jesus. It stresses His humanity and thus His unique fittedness to represent us to God. It stresses the singular and exclusive access to the Father. It is through one man. It is through this Messiah who is prophesied, I believe, beginning in Genesis chapter 3.15, 
to be one man who would come to crush Satan's head. This one man is prophesied throughout the Old Testament, and now we come to this one man, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between God and man. Why did he take on flesh? In order to connect us to God. In order to stand between. And how does he do that particularly? Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He gives himself as a ransom. As a man, he takes the place of humanity, dies in the place of the sinner. He gave himself, stressing the self-sacrificing nature of Christ's mediation and of his willing sacrifice as a ransom. That is, he laid down his life to pay sacrificially for the purchase of his people. He dies and gives his life a ransom for all. We see again the universal concept here. He gave himself a ransom for all. Probably again referring to all kinds of people. Those people have, however, individual faces. We don't want to run from that idea. And thus we can and must pray for the salvation of every individual. I think we're freed to do that here on the authority of this verse. Christ's ransom was made in the interest of all people. That ransom is, of course, rendered effectual only for the elect, but that is not Paul's focus here. His focus is it is a universal approach to reaching all kinds of people. And this is the testimony given at the right time. Very difficult phrase, but probably meaning the message of redemption in Christ came at the ideal spot on the timeline of salvation history. It's difficult to know what he means there by the testimony and what he means by the proper time, but certainly we know that's the case. That Christ came in the perfect time as a ransom for many. What does verse 7 have to do with anything? If we follow the context here, it fits beautifully into everything that he said. For this, for this gospel, for this testimony of Christ, for the message of this ransom that Jesus has paid, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. We see again here the stress on the missionary focus of this section. Of this section. Paul had been uniquely commissioned by Jesus to serve as an official witness of the death and resurrection of Christ. I'm not lying. His apostleship was always under attack, and this is a phrase that he uh, consistently used when it was under attack. But I am an apostle to the Gentiles, stressing again the universal reach of the gospel. So since there is one God... And one mediator, the gospel is to go to all people, and thus prayer should be offered for all people. Let me summarize drawing from the words of John Stodd, who I think links this all up together and ideally summarizes for us. Hear this and put it together in your mind. It is because there is one God and one mediator that all people must be included in the church's prayers and proclamation. It is the unity of God and the uniqueness of Christ which demand the universality of the gospel. God's desire and Christ's death concern all people. Therefore, the church's duty concerns all people. 
There is only one God, and there is only one means of access to Him, and this reality is to be proclaimed to every creature from every tongue and tribe and nation on earth. This is the confidence that Christ gave us Himself in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. All authority is given to me in heaven and on the planet earth. I am Lord of every inch. Go into all of the world and proclaim the gospel to all peoples. Freely run with that message. Because there is one God, because there is one mediator, because all people are created in His image, there is a universal spread of the gospel, a universal application of the gospel. And I think certainly as we ponder, this ancient instruction to the church at Ephesus is an instruction to us. And it's, I think, courage to us. It is encouragement to us to know that Christ is Lord and Savior of all. Wherever we go, in every part of this earth, there is one God and there is one mediator. If you come into our assembly today and you have not come to embrace that truth, you need to. I don't say that boastfully or because we think that we are the only right people on earth. I say that because this is the reality that Jesus Christ has demonstrated when He died on the cross to pay the penalty of sin and demonstrated that God accepted His work when He rose from the dead, fulfilling His own prophecies. There is only one Lord. There is only one Savior. You must come to this Savior in faith and embrace the gift of salvation that He provides through His work. We can take courageously this message. So we think of that as not only giving us courage to know that He is Lord of all, but also there is a, to be a global orientation. A global orientation that the Gospel is to go to all people. There have been those in the past who have thought through this whole doctrine of election, of God's predestinating people to salvation, and have said, therefore, we don't really know who God wants to save, and therefore, we really shouldn't proclaim the gospel to anyone. It's wrong thinking. It's a wrong theology. We are called by Christ to go into all the world, any marketplace, any nation, anywhere, and to proclaim the truth. We also know that it is not this message isolated then to one group of people, one kind of people, and there is to be no parish God concept in our thinking. We go into all the world and proclaim the gospel because we've been called to it. It is a global orientation. And it thirdly calls us, I think, as a church then to be a praying church, doesn't it? On Wednesday nights, every Wednesday night as we gather for prayer here, there is an emphasis on one aspect of the globe. Uh, virtually without failure, on every Wednesday night, there is an emphasis of some section of the earth, which we pray for in general terms, certainly, but trying to put together prayer requests that are also uh, wisely structured, that, that apply to that place of the earth we are praying to God to reach this entire globe all the time as an assembly. 
This takes place on Wednesday nights. This takes place in our all-night prayer meeting as we bring uh, elected officials before the Lord. And I think this is an area that we could make some progress on and need to think through this. But the reason for praying for these elected officials is for the spread of the gospel. To them individually. I think we all see that in this text, that God wants us to pray for civil officials so that they come to Christ. But I think there's a broader issue here, and that's that they would rule in such a way that it benefits the gospel. We need to be praying as a church and lifting those sacrifices of praise to to God that rulers throughout this world would be granting opportunity for the gospel to go forward. That people could live out their lives before their neighbors and could proclaim the gospel freely. This is a prayer project, isn't it? There are places today where it is really illegal to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and Sovereign. There are brothers and sisters in Christ today who are in prison because they walked onto some other God's turf. And because they dared to say that there is one God and one means of access to Him, they suffer today in prison. And there are those families who are left with individuals that have, whose lives have been taken because they proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We need to be a praying church. There are places for which we must pray intensely that God would work in the lives of the civil authorities and bring down walls. He can bring down a wall to crush 27,000 soldiers. He can bring down any wall that he chooses. We need to be praying and seeking his face, contending with him for his glory in this world, that he would bring down the walls of resistance and permit free dissemination of the gospel in places where it is highly resisted today. We need to grow in our focus on this universal mission of the gospel in our prayer lives, and as a church, let us work to that end. We have the structure of Wednesday nights particularly, but perhaps there are ways that we can continue to strategize and work to bring this focus to our assembly. And I say all of this to you, and I rejoice to do so, that we need to know in the context of this passage that this is to be happening within our assembly. And as we do it, we should be responsive to it and know that in that bulletin that you have in your hands or somewhere laying around you, there's a name of a governmental official, our vice president this week. I've got ideas, I'm just thinking in, in context of this passage of things that we should do to increase that, but that official is not listed in there just so we're aware of who was elected last time. That official is in there in direct response to this passage of Scripture. And that official needs to come to know Christ the Savior in many instances. And those officials make decisions that impact the gospel of Christ and impact brothers and sisters in Jesus throughout the world. We need to be praying. We need to be seeking His face and not looking at these things as lists or rituals but realizing that we interact with the living God to proclaim His gospel throughout the world. The key to it all is that there would be a desire in our heart for what God desires. He desires for all people to be saved. 
And if we have that same craving and that same desire within our heart, it will show itself in our prayers. It will certainly show itself in our actions. That's a different topic. But it will show itself in the prayer life of this assembly. Do we share the heart of God that all people would be saved? It will show itself in our prayer life. And may God be glorified. Let's bow for prayer.